Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Cause I'm a working man. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us this week as we celebrate our nation's independence. On this episode, we look back at the first half of 2020 in agriculture and size up the second half of the year with American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall and ag economist David Widmar. We also bring you the music of rising Nashville hitmaker Kaylin Pace. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on the program, we welcome back American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall, who's been a busy man the past few months here, uh, trying to rally the troops and continue to build positive momentum in the agriculture industry, uh, despite challenges presented by a number of factors in the first half of 2020. And President Duvall, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we we sure appreciate it. I tell you what, uh, uh, f- first of which, COVID-19 really reminded the American public of the importance of farmers and ranchers. And there was never a hiccup in the amount of food produced, uh, but disruptions to the food supply chain uh, kind of made people sit up and, and pay closer attention to where their food is coming from, didn't it? It really did, you know, and just like you said, we had plenty of food. It was just being able to get it harvested, uh, get it uh, processed, and get it to the uh, uh, grocery stores was the biggest challenge. And, uh, you know, people around America uh, realized, uh, you know, for the first time in their lives, they saw some empty shelves or they actually went to the grocery store with certain products in mind that they wanted to buy and probably couldn't buy all what they wanted. But they had plenty to eat. It just might have been different than what they planned on when they drove into the grocery store. So the federal government set aside $19 billion for aid in agriculture, including $16 billion in direct payments to farmers and ranchers through the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. You spend a lot of time with these farmers and ranchers. Uh, what has uh, what, what kind of feedback are you getting? What has the application process been like? And is the government doing enough to assist them at this point? Well, first of all, I mean, to turn out a program like that in a matter of weeks, mm-hmm. uh, the, the USDA and Secretary of Agriculture did an outstanding job. And, of course, you know there are going to be some spots that, that might not have uh, actually got the attention that it should have. And, and, uh, and that's what we've been identifying here lately. We just uh, closed the uh, comment period where we talked about the, the funds that were available and what got missed. And, and one of the areas we know that got missed was um, uh, poultry and poultry contract growers uh, don't really own the, the animals themselves, but the, the virus uh, interrupted the, the uh, production of uh, chickens and the processing of chickens. And, and we figured there was about a $750 million loss there, and they weren't in the program at all. So that's just one example of what uh, what might have been missed. And then there's others, especially around specialty crops. But to put a program of that size together, uh, deliver it uh, from offices that were closed, and for uh, people to do it on the phone and online, I mean, it's been pretty amazing how, we, how, how they've delivered that. And it's been a lifeline to our farmers. We appreciate the administration and Congress uh, throwing that lifeline out there to us. 
you know, thing we need to make uh, obvious. So it, it talked about uh, losses up to April 15th. And, of course, COVID wasn't over at April 15th. It's not over today. And we really don't know how deep this is going to go and how uh, how much financial burden is going to be on the, on the farmers uh, until it's all over. And, and it may linger on for years. Well, like you said, we're still in the middle of it. But uh, what do you feel like to this point – we've learned going through this and what do you believe the lasting impact uh, will be to the agriculture industry? Well, of course, it's one of the biggest challenges we've ever faced uh, uh, on top of uh, trade war and on top of bad economy for five or six years in, in around agriculture. But uh, uh, w- one of the biggest challenges was when, when food services industry went down, we were, were uh, uh, staying at home and, started buying all our groceries to the grocery store. Those farmers that were providing uh, fruits and vegetables and other commodities to the food service area uh, woke up the next morning without a market. And we reached out to Secretary Purdue and USDA to create a program. They created the the Farmers to Families Food Box program. And there's been over 20 million food boxes delivered to people that were unemployed and people that were in need to uh, through various organizations, and that's been a great program continues to grow. We know that there's been a huge uh, uh, effect of the virus in the meat processing area, and the packers have a difficult time getting people to show up for work. A lot of people came down with the virus. Of course, the first thing on our mind is the health of the workers and make sure they're protected. Uh, and, then we, uh, and then, of course, food safety. We want to make sure that in the future that we explored every avenue to put in a process that may help us get through this better. Uh, we've had some pricing uh, uh, differences that we think uh, possibly were unfair to farmers. Our uh, consumers were going to the grocery store p- paying uh, a lot more for their food and, and certain commodities, and that, that price was not dwindling down to the farmers, uh, and we are questioning whether what happened in that process and we're we've got a study group in farm bureau made up of state farm bureau presidents to look into what we might can suggest to help prevent prevent that from happening in the future then of course our rural health and our rural hospitals the strain is put on them uh and it's also if it made americans realize how important the food our food and farmers were to them each and every day it's made rural america uh understand how important broadband is yeah. between health care and between distance learning with our children and the technology that we use on our farms and how we need broadband to do that. One other area that uh, Farm Bureau was very vocal in and has been before this, but uh, really jumped on this right, right away, and rightfully so, was labor. Uh, what, oh, yeah. what needs to be done to ensure that there's a readily available workforce for those producers who rely on those workers that enter the country through the H-2A visa program? Well, of course, I think we've learned a lot uh, mm-hmm. in that area. And when they shut down uh, embassies and and, uh, and set, shut down the process of not letting people come into the country, uh, you, you got to understand that that has a huge effect on American agriculture. About 250,000 workers uh, were at risk. And we were able to work with this administration to make sure that we streamlined it, uh, prevented some of the face-to-face interviews, people that had already been here before and, and been tried and true good workers. And 
uh, you know, were able to come back. So we were able to head that off. But we, we need immigration reform. We need farm labor reform. And we need to make sure that uh, we have a system in place to make sure that not only uh, to be able to harvest the crops and, and take care of the animals, uh, but also to, to take care of the growth uh, in our industry that we know needs to come. Uh, for the amount of people that's going to be on the face of the earth that we have to feed. And we need the opportunity for our young people to continue to farm. And, and the only way we can do that is, is to have the, the amount of labor in a program that we can bring the labor here. Because Americans just don't want to do that kind of work anymore. And we have to have people from other countries come here that, that are better bettering themselves by being here and doing that farm work. Yeah, I think one of the growers that you had had on uh, when you did a, a press event said out of 1,200 positions that they had open, when they opened up applications, you only had seven uh, folks who were non-H2A uh, uh, workers that, that actually applied for, for all those positions. That's, that's exactly correct. And, uh, you know, it's not a true fact to say, well, if you pay them more, they'll come and work for you. That, that's not true. These people that come and work from here, from other countries, they get paid very well. They get a place to live. They get transportation to the work and back and forth, and 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 healthcare. You know, so they're paid very well, and uh, and that that's not a true statement. And and to say that unemployment is uh, on the increase and a lot of Americans don't have a job, that you know that those people shouldn't be coming here. We should be providing those jobs to Americans. Americans are just not going to do it. They're just not going to come and do it. We've tried that over and over and over for years. So I want to move on to USMCA, which took effect this week. It's expected to bring $2 billion in an annual increase in agriculture exports and an overall increase of $65 billion to the GDP. Uh, it's going to uh, potentially open up uh, new markets to the dairy industry in Canada and also be possibly a boon to the wheat industry among others and in 2019 mexico was our largest overall trading partner followed by canada so uh it, it seems like uh, on the face uh, another win for agriculture here you know nafta was a great win for agriculture it went from eight or nine billion dollars of trade up to 40 and was growing and yes a, a trade agreement of the age it was it needed modernizing so i salute the administration and the president for modernizing it because a lot of things we do different in agriculture today than what we did 20 something years ago so it it needed that modernization you know there uh uh we needed to show the world that this president can put together a trade treaty with our closest neighbors that would work and and he did that and we'll we are excited about it being implemented now uh, of course there's certain areas that still got left out uh, we we are still concerned about a fruit and vegetable people down in Florida, South Georgia, and Alabama that uh, get hit hard when uh, Mexico dumps those fruits and vegetables in on top of us. We're concerned about whether or not uh, Canada is going to stay within the rules that were uh, put forth in the new uh, NAFTA, new trade in USMCA uh, when it comes to milk. So we're going to be watching all that real close to make sure that um, you know, someone uh, in another one of those countries don't take advantage of our producers. But all in all, it was a great renegotiation. Uh, came out with a plus in agriculture, and we're excited about seeing the implementation of it. Another situation that bears watching is China. I know when I was at the Farm Barrel Convention uh, down in Austin back in January, that was uh, right right when uh, th this thing had been. Uh, 
seemed like wrapped up here and uh, th there was a lot of optimism. Talked to a lot of farmers there that, that were really excited about this. In the time since then, we, we've had COVID and uh, a lot's been going on that's affected uh, the, the global markets. And uh, what we're seeing right now as we head into the second half of the year, that ag imports by China haven't even reached the 2018 or 19 levels, kind of leaving people wondering about the long-term success of phase one. Uh, how, how concerned should farmers be about this, or are there just enough factors at play here that, uh, including a worldwide pandemic, that, that we just need to be patient and uh, you know use some measured optimism here? Well, the biggest concern is the rhetoric around between our two countries on issues that doesn't have anything to do with agriculture. But of course, that rhetoric always plays uh, uh, for a difficult, rough road for agriculture when we have uh, our two countries kind of having a dispute on other issues. China uh, is our third largest uh, trading partner in 2019, and Hong Kong was eighth largest. Uh, so a lot of our commodities were going that way, and phase one was just a breath of fresh air we thought was a great win for us uh but we're looking right now at uh it, to stay on target to to live up to their commitments they're they're about 60 percent behind where they should be to meet up get to meet those targets so we're very concerned about that and we continue to talk, talk to the administration of course we know that the biggest purchasing month that china has with america is coming it always always in our new crop where they're leaving the market buying from brazil right now and turning to america to american products but we're still on track uh, running behind considerably behind where they should be to to hit those marks that, that were set out in the phase one but but having said that you know no one could predict that covid was going to be here and and how much that's going to affect the end totals i don't know it is crucial that we uh, make phase one work if not this year, definitely next year, uh, because to get American agriculture back on its feet, we have to export our products and we have to have a level playing field in the world market to be able to move our products. Another key federal move that happened last week, the Trump administration's Navigable Waters Protection Rule went into effect, replacing the Waters of the U.S. Rule. And now there's work to be done on the part of farmers and ranchers. But again, on paper, it looks like this rule is going to be good for the agriculture industry. It is. You know, if you look at the old rule, and, and a lot of us had worked with it for, for several years, it, it was so cumbersome. It took, you had to hire lawyers and consultants to be able to figure out what you could and couldn't do. It was the largest land grab in federal history. And, uh, and so... Uh, to be able to go back and rewrite that rule, uh, you know, early, early on, I had initial talks with the then administrator Pruitt about how we needed to simplify it. I said, you know, the perfect rule would be uh, just a page or two, something I could set on the dash of my truck, I could read, comprehend it, be able to go out and put it on the land. And, and you know, did they make it that simple? Not quite, but they come a long ways and got real close. So we're real pleased with this rule, and it withstood. Uh, the first court challenge, and uh, and it's going to be able to be implemented across the country. That is a great win, and, and we think this is going to be good for American agriculture. It's going to be put good for our environment because it gives us clear rules so that we can provide clean water. Uh, you know, when the rules aren't clear, you know, nothing really uh, is accomplished. So 
uh, now we think the environment will be better off because of this rule. Well, another key priority for Farm Bureau in 2020 is modernizing federal milk marketing orders. And in January, Farm Bureau delegates voted to support giving individual dairy farmers a voice by allowing them to vote independently and confidentially on rules governing milk prices. And uh, uh, the Farm Bureau believes that the opportunity to vote on milk pricing rules, along with other proposed changes to marketing orders, is going to form a strong foundation to guide the organization uh, during future reform efforts and to coordinate a better milk supply and demand in the industry that uh, has uh, seen its number of challenges since you guys started talking about this. That's true. And, you know, I spent 30 years dairying myself. I met <laughs> 300 cows here for 30 years before I became president of Georgia Farm Bureau. And, and there's nothing closer to my heart than dairy farmers. And and uh, and, and they have struggled something terribly. And really, this conversation started in a meeting with USDA where we were challenged to say, let's look at milk marketing. Uh, you know, it's been set up for 60 years this way. Uh, does it really, does milk marketing, uh, like we know it today, uh, uh, was created 60 years ago, still fit today's markets? We don't know. So let's study it. And, and we put together that group. We released. It was very transparent. We had all kind of experts come in and talk. We had some of the brightest dairymen that knew about dairy pricing, which is very difficult to understand. Uh, I can't really say myself that I totally understand it. So they were people that knew more about the market, milk marketing and pricing than I did, uh, and came out with a bunch of white papers and, and uh, talked about where we, how we need to go forward and what the desires of the dairymen was to make it uh, make th- that business uh, better in the future. Of course, uh, we also ventured into the area of risk management, and, and uh, our economist, John Newton, uh, played a major role in creating a risk management program that's been delivered uh, through uh, rain and hail uh, all across America that uh, gives our farmers another risk management to something similar to a crop farmer would have in crop insurance. It's a revenue policy uh, that, that helps them be able to uh, better manage their risk and, 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 and on their farms each and every day. So through through our study efforts and through the risk management programs that we've been able to play a huge role in delivering, we hope the, the future of dairy industry will be brighter. Well, not to digress, but uh, listening to that, it, it made me think of something that I've heard a couple of farm broadcasters say uh, throughout all this, that uh, the, the, there seemed to be a, a level where there, there were – some farmers who maybe didn't even really understand where that milk went after the truck left the farm or that, uh, that you know, that they didn't kind of understand the, the rest of that process. Do you, do you think this whole situation that, that, that we've been through the last couple of months is, is going to uh, make producers take another look at the business aspect of this? I, I think it will. And I, it's made us all ask a lot of additional questions. You know, when I was there in, you know, dairy is a 24-hour day, seven days a week job, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of time to sit in the office and try to figure out what was happening in your paycheck. Yeah. And I know that's good business, but uh, that's just the way the dairy industry is. Uh, and, and I think that uh, producers and cooperatives are going to have to sit down and talk about what stabilizes our industry more and stabilizes it to the point where we continue, can, can continue to get operating loans uh, and be able to expand or, or, or grow and bring our young people into it 
it, it is a uh, it is a industry within agriculture that is a necessity, uh, and it's a great industry. So we got to find some way to to get it to survive. Uh, and the and the larger dairies dairies seem to take these uh, challenges on the chin a lot better than the smaller dairies. But we got to be able to have both. Uh, small family farm dairies and, and larger dairies too, and we got to figure out what that uh, marketing looks like to be able to keep both in business. Well, I tell you another another big issue these days. Everywhere I've been over the past uh, year, year and a half or so, uh, you can't walk too far at any farm show or, or event without uh, hearing hemp mentioned. And uh, uh, back at the uh, the convention, the delegates voted to support allowing a higher THC level in hemp. And that gives you guys the flexibility to engage in discussions with regulators and lawmakers about the appropriate legal level and and just kind of how this whole process plays out. Uh, what 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 uh, passes for uh, hemp uh, uh, legally and uh, uh, there's it seems like there there's still a lot of work to be done there. But uh, do do you feel like progress is being made in terms of? Uh, uh, all these federal organizations uh, getting into lockstep to uh, uh, make this process a little bit uh, easier for, for growers and processors and distributors? Well, I think hemp is a perfect example of our farmers are eager to have something to diversify into, mm-hmm. and they're also eager to try new things. And not, you know, we don't just have to grow cotton or peanuts or corn or, uh, or soybeans or just do livestock. We're willing to take that risk to move into new areas. Uh, hemp, uh, the production side grew a lot faster than the processing side, and it's been described to me as the wild, wild west because it, from state to state, uh, whether it's transportation or whether it's uh, the levels in it, uh, whether the legal levels in it uh, or is, is the subject matter, it, it's all over the board from state to state. So we got to find we got to bring some common ground to it. We got to find some solutions. We got to further develop the processing end of it, uh, so that our farmers know what they're getting into. Because I, I'm real fearful of, of, of some of the farmers getting in and and not having a place to go with that product. Uh, uh, but I, I think it's a perfect example of how eager our farmers are to take on something new. Just last week, the Farm Bureau has supported climate change research and the documentation of agriculture's advances toward climate smart practices. And along those lines, uh, you guys came out last week in support of the Growing Climate Solution Act, which directs the USDA to create a certification for third parties and an advisory council for voluntary climate markets. And this is something that I believe is going to create a pathway for farmers and ranchers to begin talking and participating in uh, carbon market credits, and that's something we heard U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue talking about here on the show last week. Uh, you know, we first thing is it's important for us to have a seat, have a seat at the table. When people talk about climate change, if you don't have farmers around the table talking about what we've already done and what's important to lead us to the next steps to let us continue to help, you know, we we produce we we are responsible less than ten percent of greenhouse gases. Everybody else wants to say that we're we're responsible for a lot more than that, but that's that's the fact. Less than ten percent. And then if you incorporate, if you put into the formula what our grasslands, what our uh, uh, our uh, wetland preservation, what our forest lands contribute to um, to taking uh, cons- uh, 
sequestration of carbon, uh, you, we're really uh, probably a neutral uh, carbon uh, contributor. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure that our farmers are around the table. And then, too, I think this is another area where I talk about where farmers are looking for something new to and diversify in. I think that carbon trading and uh, uh, is something that our farmers would be interested in, uh, and they totally deserve uh, being able to get compensated compensated before for their efforts to uh, make improvements in the climate, uh, and then taking it into USDA and let them kind of be in a clearinghouse, bring some trust to the system that farmers have always trusted USDA, and, and if it's done through USDA, I think there'll be trust and have more buy-in. Uh, one of the secrets to all this, though, when you talk about climate change, one, one of the key things is research and development dollars. You know, if our farmers are eager to take advantage of any new conservation practice out there, uh, and we need to continue to spend those research and development dollars so that our land-grant colleges and businesses can deliver to, to, the, uh, to farm country uh, the new practices that we're going to be taking on to help improve our, our climate because we want to be part of the solution mm-hmm. and we have been in the past we want to continue to do that well i tell you what we've got a lot on our plate as we head into the second half of 2020 but in addition to what we've already discussed here what what are other situations in agriculture that you're going to be following closely well of course now they're starting to begin to get some talking about a new farm bill and you know what that's going to look like is it going to be possible to have one and i so, you know, I'm anxious to start having those conversations. Uh, we're going to continue to uh, talk about the next uh, package, the uh, COVID package, uh, because, you know, this, just like I said earlier, this, this, this last COVID package talked about uh, losses up to April the 15th, and, and we're nowhere near the end of it. So this 2020 crop will have extreme losses. I, I think I think we're going to uh, have a really deep and serious look about uh uh, processing protein process processing and how it's so concentrated uh, to certain just a few handful of companies and hopefully we can spread that out a little bit and make uh, make pricing a little little uh, better for agriculture and for the for the processors too so I just think there's a lot of things that, that COVID has opened our eyes up to uh, we're going to continue to evaluate what we've done right what we've done wrong and what we can do better uh, and we'll, and as the organization, we'll be putting forth some suggestions and proposals to Congress and the USDA and this administration or whatever administration is there uh, to make sure that, that the food system in our country is strong and well. You know, one of the things that we surveyed people about, we took a survey of folks, and uh, one of the ones, the questions that really stuck out in my mind was we asked adults, uh, uh, young and old, uh, Democrat and Republican, uh, did they think that uh, agriculture and farmers were a national security issue? And 59% of the people we surveyed said yes. You know, we've been saying that for years, but to get a confirmation from from uh, the public of almost 60%, uh, that, that kind of blew me away. And we also asked them how important was agriculture and farmers to them in their life, and 84% the people we surveyed said that agriculture and farmers were important to them. It's a wake-up call when you head to your supermarket and you can't get a gallon of milk. That's exactly right. That's exactly, and that's one of the challenges we faced was they couldn't get but one gallon of milk, and we had chairmen dumping milk out. Yeah. So 
we I made sure we talked to the the big uh, big stores across America to say, look, we we can't do this. We got the milk. We we got to figure out some way to get it to the people. Yeah, most definitely. Well, I tell you what, as long as we've been having these conversations. Uh, we, we always talk about some of the challenges in the industry, uh, and they've been well chronicled, but uh, how do we accentuate the bright spots? Because we can't get out of here without talking about those, and there, there are many, many, and I think they get kind of uh, uh, lost in the shuffle sometimes, but there's a lot of good things going on in this industry right now. There there are, uh, and, and I think that the future uh, for American agriculture is just as bright as it's ever been. Uh, you know, uh, I've been in agriculture all my life. I remember my dad telling me, son, if this is what you choose to do, it's like a roller coaster. Put your seatbelt on, pull it up tight because you're going to hit highs and lows. We're in a low right now, and I know how everybody's feeling, uh, feeling, uh, feeling that low. But agriculture will start to get, be on the increase. Uh, we'll be on top again, and, and all this, all these bad things will just be a memory and uh and i look forward to seeing this industry grow uh, become profitable draw young people to it because we got a lot of work to do we got a lot of people to feed and and uh and we got a lot of solutions we got to find for our industry when i tell you what uh when that happens uh, farm bureau is going to be driving the train on this because you guys do great work and uh, President Duvall, I am always appreciative uh, of your time and uh, the, the opportunity to sit down and, and discuss these important issues with you. Well, thank you. I can't take any of that credit. My Lord gives me the strength and the wisdom to do this, but the real wisdom in our organization comes from my grassroots, and that's them farmers and ranchers is out there listening to you and I right now driving the tractor or working in the barn. They are the strength and power of this industry and this organization, and my hat is off to them because they are resilient, and they're tough, and I am proud of them. And, and definitely passionate folks. So if you're not a member of that organization, uh, do, do check into uh, making sure you get on board here. And President Duvall, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here once again on Fast Line Fast Track, and we look forward to the next conversation. Anytime. I always enjoy visiting with you. And now we want to bring in David Widmar, who's an ag economist and co-founder, along with Brent Gloy of Agricultural Economic Insights. We bring him on the show a couple times every year to give us a status report on the industry. And David, every time I brought you in on the show, we talk about how unusual the previous period was and kind of laugh about what might happen next. But as I brought you on on January 3rd, COVID-19 wasn't even on our radar screen. And I don't think anybody could have predicted how this first half of 2020 was going to shake out welcome to the program and man what do you make of all this well it's great to join you i appreciate the the reminder of uh <laughs> our our the gap in our episodes because a lot always changes and some of the things we were watching uh six months ago aren't on the on the on our on our vision right now and so we uh it's always helpful to keep that perspective in mind so i think if we had to sum up the situation we we're facing right now it is uncertainty we've um 
you know, we've gone through the pandemic uncertainty. We've gone through a lot of economic uncertainty. We know a little bit more about the pandemic today, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. We know a little bit more about the economy today, but still a lot of uncertainty. And of course, we have a lot of uncertainty in agriculture. The growing season, summer months are always an uncertain time period with respect to weather and production. But now we add demand uncertainty and COVID uncertainties and market factor uncertainties. Uh, it's a lot of uncertainty out there. So aside from the food supply chain that, that was well publicized, what, what do you believe the impact of COVID was on the agriculture industry? And do you think there's going to be lasting effects? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's back up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that the farm economy has, uh, was in a tricky spot going in yeah. to the beginning of this year. If you can keep in mind, net farm income has been on a on the downward side of, of the trend going back to 2014. We were dealing with the trade war. Uh, we were dealing with oversupply issues. And so the COVID is just another shock to that system, sort of the, the third wave of impacts. I think uh, in January, we had a lot of optimism about the trade war starting to go the right direction. Contrary to what we've been hearing, what we see in the data is that we haven't seen an uptick in, in trade activity with China. So that's still a headwind. And um, we've seen just a lot of pausing. And one of the, the pausing and uncertainty. And so we were going to plant too many acres of corn and too many acres of soybeans to begin with. And now it's a lot of uncertainty on the demand side. So we have the ethanol question. We have the exports question. And even with exports, right, um, the China question mark is still there. You know, China is now, we're facing the China situation with respect to the trade war, but also China's economy. And, and so all these things start to intertwine, and it's hard to unravel any one particular strand and fully um, isolate it. Well, you mentioned China. I know when I was back at the uh, uh, American Farm Bureau Federation uh, convention down in Austin, Texas in, in January. That was right when this phase one deal w- w- was uh, sewn up and uh, uh, President Trump was there and took kind of a victory lap, uh, uh, you know, celebrating the fact that the deal got done. But uh, ever since then, I, I mean, what we've seen so far is that uh, China's on pace for its lowest amount of ag purchases uh, slipping below uh, 2018 and, and 2019 levels. Um, I mean, I guess this is just something that uh, the, the bears watching. The, the, there's not a lot farmers can do about it. Yeah, but 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 sit back and uh, and hope that uh, they will honor their agreement as Ambassador Lighthizer has uh, has stated that they would. Yeah, and so we got to keep a lot of things in mind, right? When we talk about where we are today, we're talking about a pace, and so there's a lot of seasonality. So uh, we know that China is going to be buying more at the end of the year than they typically buy at the beginning year of the year. That's just part of the seasonality. I think they buy around 60% of, um, I think all the soybeans, they buy 60% of all the soybeans and half of our trade with China are soybeans. So a big chunk of total trade happens in the last quarter of the year. So we got to think about how much of the media headlines we hear are about the seasonal trend versus paces that are above trend so that's going to be important to keep in mind i guess we always wondered at ag economic insights if china would be able to hit that goal Mm -hmm. and and even that goal is really hard to understand what's counted and what's not counted and what exactly 
uh, are we including commodity-wise or cost-wise? Um, but we were optimistic that the trade deal would signal a return to pre-trade war levels. We would start to see China being a, a significant buyer again. And, and it, in our mind, it didn't really matter what level or threshold we got as long as we were trending upward. And the disappointing thing is we haven't got out of that trade war rut, as you mentioned. We're still in that trade war rut. And so we got to keep an eye on that. I think um, even if China were to come in and start buying today at a fast pace, I think it's questionable will we get back to pre-trade war levels. So it's important to keep in mind it was a source of a lot of optimism in the farm economy back several months ago. Uh, it's not necessarily there right now. It's worth pointing out one of the headwinds that we're facing in the, U in the U.S. right now um, is a strong dollar. And that's not necessarily a headwind for China, the way the currencies work, but the strong dollar uh, relative to the Brazilian real means that China's been finding some pretty good deals on soybeans out of South America. And so we always got to keep in mind that I think at the end of the day, China is not a, uh, we like to think of China as a sort of this big government buyer. And that's not the case. These are independent buyers and independent firms going out trying to buy the, the uh, being a, an economic buyer of, of ag products. And I think we got to keep in mind some of these big trends. And so the COVID situation has put strength on the dollar. It's weak in the Brazilian real. And with respect to the soybean trade, I think South America has benefited uh, from that in the, you know, March, April, May window. So then we uh, kind of move on to, the, to something else that we've talked about a whole lot over the past couple of years. USMCA, as of a couple of days ago, that, that's now in place. Uh, what do you feel like the short term and long term implications of that agreement are going to be? I think that if we were to sum it up for U.S. agriculture, broadly speaking, again, painting with broad strokes here, it would be um, a sigh of relief. It's more of a disaster avoided situation. I think there isn't, um, if you're raising corn and soybeans in the Midwest, uh, there isn't a whole lot of improvement here. There's a lot of status quo maintaining of what we had in the NAFTA agreement. There might be, there are some improvements um, with respect to maybe some wheat growers, especially if you're near the border, dairy saw some improvements and maybe some market access. But broadly speaking, we, we saw this next phase of that, that trade agreement. And I think it was a, a, a incremental improvement in, uh, in that trade. I think, you know, a label like NAFTA 2.0 is, is not what they're branding it, but I think it makes sense to think about it as a, an iterative process, an update of where we were before. A lot of those components, um, or maybe more applicable to the manufacturing side of the economy, such as automobile manufacturing. Uh, some labor laws got updated. So the ag story is a little bit of upside growth, but we really avoided that risk of downside if we were to saw a, a backing away of those trade relations with Canada and Mexico. You know, it's interesting. Um, if we would have been back before the trade war, we just talked about the three big trade partners that the U.S. has, China, Canada, and Mexico, collectively, they purchase 50% of all of our ag products. And I always thought that's a, it's a very interesting thing to think about. We have our two neighbors, and then we have the, one of the biggest uh, buyers of agricultural products in the world, or who we're doing the most of our trade with. And so if you think about it that way, um, we have taken some of the risk off the table 
where we're no longer concerned about the, the, the a downside hit to the trade relations with our closest neighbors as it comes. And number two, or depending on the year, right, uh, one of the, the two top three trade partners that we deal with on an annual basis in ag. Well, another one that you're not hearing a lot about in the media, but but it seems to me, just as I've kind of observed it over the past few months, it seems to be even stickier than, than perhaps China is what's going on with the EU. Uh, what do you make of that whole situation? Yeah, so again, the EU is um, a different, it's going to be a different set of negotiations. So we, we see this very vast um, set of um, activities going on with trade negotiations. We're talking about trade with China, uh, which is China buying a lot of our um, commodities, and then we're buying finished goods from them. We're talking about trade with Canada and Mexico, which are our neighbors, and there's a whole host of trade going on there. And then you know, uh, the the EU negotiations is again a, another different type of uh, agreement. I think the EU one's going to be a little more tricky. There's a lot of trade partners uh, and a lot of countries involved there. I think it's also worth pointing out that um, there's the UK question mark uh, with respect to Brexit and how they're going to fit into that, and so. Um, how our negotiations with the EU also impact negotiations with, with the UK. Uh, again, I think COVID puts a lot of this on pause as the world economy start to, you know, find a footing and they start to focus on recovery. And I think the big thing that we're going to be focused on in the short run is how do we recover trade and how do we recover the supply chain and how do we get back to a status quo and then starting to work on how do we improve upon that that base level. Well, I tell you what, as we try to sort out some of those questions, we've got crop in the field right now, and the June acreage report just came out this week. It uh, shows a sharp decrease in corn-planted area from uh, March intentions and uh, uh, a slightly lower than uh, uh, predicted uh, average for soybeans as well. What, what do you make of what you saw of that report this week? Yeah, so we were looking, the markets were concerned and looking uh, at the potential of 97 million acres of corn being planted in the U.S. I think the threat was definitely um, severe. That would have put ending stocks at a very burdensome level. Mm-hmm. And so the report as it stands was an improvement. We saw um, uh, the, a slightly less bearish outlook for corn and soybean production and, and prices. There's still a lot of question marks. It's still a burdensome situation. Um, we still planted a lot of corn and a lot of soybeans. Um, we still have to wait for yields to come in. I think you know the growing season thus far has been overall uh, positive, and we still have the demand question marks. So I think it's a slightly improved outlook, but it's still a challenging outlook to keep in mind. And so um, we got a <laughs> we got one big. We actually thought about this ahead of time. We were looking at this, and history would suggest that about half the time um, acres turn higher after the March report, and half the time they turn lower. And in this case, um, we're just we're just thankful that uh, we didn't see acres come in at that 97 million acre mark for corn or uh, even higher, which history would suggest was a possibility. We're near the, the world agriculture supply and demand estimates. Uh, is it your gut feeling that, uh, that, that we're going to stay ar- around those marks and uh, just kind of a, a wait and see pattern? 
you know, I think one of the big questions that we have in the U.S. specifically is around ethanol, yeah. and it's around how much are we driving, how much economic activity do we have in the broad economy, how much driving is going on, how much blending of ethanol is going on. Um, and that's a big question mark, and we got to see that clear up. Um, that's still a huge question mark on the on the um, usage side. I think um, we're, we're going to start to see, you know, we're getting into to July here. The heat and the rain is going to start to, you know, go one way or the other. Is the crop going to be, um, is the crop going to start to show signs of stress? Are we going to see uh, the crop maturing in a in a in a in a healthy way in a in a productive way? And so, as we get in, you know, when we touch back base it, it later on, as you get into August, we're going to have a lot more confidence around the yield, and even into September. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have more confidence around that yield. And so we'll start to see where it goes. So we haven't seen a giant production hiccup yet. And um, there's probably, you know, six to eight weeks left uh, of there to be an opportunity for a big production hiccup to come. So we'll keep an eye on that. So if there was one segment of the industry that was really kind of touched uh, more immediately by COVID-19, it was the uh, livestock, poultry, and dairy industry, which, uh, all took some hits now uh, by all indications are slowly starting to, to, to bounce back. Where do we go in those industries right now? Yeah. Um, when you paint with broad strokes, you got to always mm-hmm. step back and say, you know, what industries maybe have fared better than average or, or worse than average. And as you said, the livestock's been particularly hit uh, a, or a lot of around the supply chain uh, hiccups, right? And so workforce issues, so it's going to be some some challenges to one get those um, get the supply chain repaired and get that product moving uh, and to work through the backlog. I think that could take some time. The second piece is what happens with the consumer side. And as we were talking um, beforehand, we've sort of went through the first phase of this, which was the economy uh, adjusting to a, a socially distant uh, society. And so we're kind of there today, right? But what happens is the economy starts to come back. And so we got to think about this food consumption at home versus away from home. And how do we make sure the meat products and the dairy products and all the food products work their way through the supply chain to get the consumer what they're looking for at the the place in the supply chain they're looking for. And so I think um, we're going to see some, some struggles in the future as, as, Hopefully, the social distancing relaxes over the next maybe three, four, five months, and the economy starts to, to pick back up a little bit. Um, at, I guess the point I want to make there is that we're not out of the woods. We still have a lot of uh, issues to work through as the economy opens back up and starts to recover. So we've talked so much about African swine fever over the past year, and now we're getting word about the possibility of a new strain of swine flu out of China, do you see that having any kind of bearing on world pork production? Yeah, I think the um, so it was African swine fever that we were really worried about yeah. and thinking about the last 18 months. And it was actually one of those things that you could put on um, an opportunity side of the, the, the ledger for U.S. agriculture mm-hmm. at the beginning of the year. And so that is still causing some challenges to the global meat supply chain. I think um, it's not as nearly as concerning as it was a year ago or six months ago, but there's still some 
shocks going on with respect to China losing uh, large shares of its hog population. The next sort of the, the I actually had a question about this earlier. Um, this new story that's coming out is a as a swine flu related um, disease, and it might have implications for human health. And so mm. this is at an early stage of conversation. I don't think there's anything to be concerned about with right now, but I think we, you know, we're hyper concerned about, uh, and rightfully so, about um, these diseases as it might impact the animals and or the human aspect of it. And so that's something to keep our eyes on. We'll see how that plays out, of course. Um, and we'll see uh, how, again, it, we file that under uncertainty. Yeah. And we'll see uh, how, it, how it works out. That file seems to be growing. Unfortunately, yes. Um, and, and that's why it's important for um, managers, farm managers, to, to invest in their thinking and the tools that improve their thinking and, and, and challenging themselves and their assumptions and always uh, asking the difficult questions of those around them to make sure that they can pull in as much information as possible to make the best decisions in light of uncertain markets and uncertain futures. Well, another aspect we haven't talked about yet, and I just want to hit on briefly here, uh, another wild card here on farms in the U.S. is labor. Um, it, you know, it, we saw a lot of concern and panic at the outset of COVID that, that, that a, lot, a lot of producers weren't going to be able to get the workers they needed because the H-2A visa program had been halted. And uh, I think whether it's halted or not, you always have that concern out there. Do you have any kind of confidence that, uh, that, that this thing is going to become anywhere near close to rectified and that uh, uh, producers are going to be able to get the, the labor they need to, to be able to uh, harvest and, and, and process uh, crops the way they need to? You know, that's a great question. Again, I think it's uh, one of those situations where on average, I don't think we're expecting a big challenge, but I think that certain crops, certain parts of the country, certain operations are going to have a, a big struggle this year. <clears throat> it was interesting. We actually uh, were closely watching and monitoring this ag modernization bill that mm -hmm. was working its way through Congress before COVID, and it had a lot of momentum. And it was just really interesting how that, you know, there's the there's, there's always a challenge with an ag labor. We had some things that were starting to go the right way. And then we add, those got put the brakes on them. And then we add the COVID uh, challenges on top of that. And so it's been a huge struggle uh, for some producers. You know, a lot of producers uh, in the Corn Belt in the Midwest that are raising grain, they haven't felt the pain as much as uh, some of these specialty crop growers and um, yeah. in, in livestock operations that have significantly larger labor workforce requirements. Well, I tell you what, we plowed a lot of ground here uh, so far in our conversation. Uh, before I let you go here, what are some of the other things that we should consider as we size up the back half of 2020? You know, one of the things that uh, we're watching here, of course, um, one of them is the off-farm income component. We spent a lot of time um, diving into that with some of the work we have on our website. And I think a lot of times we think about the farm economy getting impacted from low commodity prices, but when we dive into the data, we know a lot of producers, a majority of the 2 million farms that the USDA monitors and includes in their uh, measurements rely on off-farm income to, set, to, to help satisfy all the family uh, obligations, which include family living expense and debt service of, of their farm debts. 
And so what we have here in the farm economy today is we have low commodity prices, which is going to impact that on-farm activity. But unfortunately, some of these operations are going to also feel the pain of off-farm income uh, squeeze. Maybe there's a, a layoff or uh, some furloughing. That could cause some problems with the farm economy as well. And so when you look at the data we saw, um, there's some concern for that. The other thing we're really watching here is government payments and the size of government payments for the rest of 2020. Um, right now, there isn't a program in place that's going to address the corn and soybean production that's going on right now. And so we had a, that CFAP program paid for 2019 crops that were in the bin. But what about the crops that are growing right now? So we're watching that to see if there's going to be a program come from that. And then longer term, I think we can start to wonder what does the situation look like in 2021? There's going to be a lot of attention going to the, the, the outlook. And, you know, we still fundamentally have a lot of acres in production. Well, and, and that's especially true relative to where usage and usage uncertainty is. And so we have questions about what the outlook looks like six months from now, what farm policy program and tools will be in place to help us weather that as well. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of questions are going to remain even six months from now. Even as the economy starts to recover, we have a lot of questions that we got to monitor and watch as we move forward. Well, I want to throw a quick plug in here. If you're just joining this program and this is your uh... – uh, entree into Fast Line Fast Track. Make sure you go back to episode 60, the prior episode uh, where we talk with Matt Breckwald, who is the host of the Off Farm Income podcast. And uh, he gets into uh, to, to ways that uh, you can supplement that off farm income if you uh, need some extra cash coming in or if you have had layoffs or any of the things that have happened through COVID. So make sure you go check that out and, and check out my buddy uh, Matt Breckwald there because he does a great job with that. And, and I know it's a huge concern for a lot of people right now. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Well, I tell you what, man, I, I feel like sometimes we, we have these discussions and we're opening Pandora's box here because you talk about looking into 2021 here and, and what six months down the road looks like for every time we've done that. It seems like it gets a, a, a little bit trickier and a little bit stranger. So here, here's hoping maybe we can have a, a bit of a leveling off between now and then. Yeah, I think, um, again, like I said earlier, it's really important that farm managers um, – don't just bury their head in the sand and sort of wait for it to blow over. We still have to make decisions. We still have to plant the crop. We still have to raise our livestock. And so we still have to make good decisions. And so it's important to invest our, our time and our thinking in the ways to make improvements in that space. And so listening to this podcast is one example of that. And I hope that everyone um, considers um, how they how they can improve their thinking and their decision-making in, in light of all the uncertainty. Well, along those lines, uh, you and Brent Gloy do an amazing job of breaking this stuff down. So even a simple mind like mine can, can understand it and, and figure some of this stuff out. So if folks want to go and, and check out what you've got here and, and get plugged into everything going on uh, with Agricultural Economic Insights, where can they go? Check out our website, AEI.ag. That's the best place to get started. There's a, we post a weekly article every Monday. You can sign up for that. And we also have, we call AEI Premium, which is where a lot of our uh, content is available for those who really want to dive in and roll their sleeves up. Do it. I mean, I'm telling you, if you really want to uh, get the ins and outs and, and great perspective on things, make, make sure you go sign up for that. And at the very least, get that weekly email because it's just chock full of, uh, of great insights and 
And uh, I know it's been a huge help, help to me in, in understanding some things along the way. And I hope you go check that out. But uh, again, David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. And uh, man, I really look forward to, to our next discussion here. Same here. Stay, uh, stay healthy and stay safe. We'll catch you next time. You do the same. And again, that was uh, David Widmar with Agricultural Economic Insights. Well, next up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, one of my favorite things to do is to bring on new artists. And this week, I'm excited to welcome into the program Kaylin Pace. She's out of Nashville by way of Michigan, and she's rapidly gaining exposure in the independent uh, country world. She has a new single out called Give It a Shot, which we'll talk about in a bit. But first of all, Kaylin, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hello, how are you? Doing great. Uh, we, we are excited to get to talk to you here. We really appreciate you joining us uh, from the road. Uh, Kaylin is in Illinois where she's been touring, hitting up some of the socially responsibly distant spots there that COVID hasn't shut down again. How fun is it for you to be in front of a live audience playing again? Oh, it's awesome. I, I've loved every minute of it. And a lot of the people that, and I've played at this place before, so a lot of people showed up that I've met already before. So they were all just really supportive and it just felt good to play. And I actually said that a few times throughout the show. So um, it was very nice to get out there and play a real show and have a full PA. That always makes a difference. And you so were, it was a lot of fun. And you were right there off of Route 66 in Pontiac, Illinois, where we had a chance yes, to do a show last summer uh, with our friends with Precision Planting, where we got to go to the PTI farm there and do some stuff and a lot of great people in that town really really cool little town yeah it is, it is really neat town it's small but it's, it's really neat so i enjoy it so take us back a bit i understand you yeah. have actually been performing for quite a long time yes i have yeah i uh actually um moved to tennessee with my family um when i was eight years old and that's kind of when i started performing because i actually sung in front of my whole school um, when I lived in Tennessee, and that's kind of how it all started with me performing. Um, and then we ended up actually just moving back that next year um, to Michigan. But I would say probably that move to Tennessee, and um, I started doing a lot of karaoke then too. So, uh, yeah, I performed in front of my whole school. So it's really eight years old is when I started performing, and now I'm 24. And um, when I got back from Tennessee, we moved back um, – like I said, I started doing a lot of karaoke, and my mom started booking me a lot of um, competitions um, just to kind of get me out there and get exposure. And, you know, of course, when I was little, I had more stage fright than obviously I do now. So my mom wanted me to get out there and, um, you know, take that fear away from me, or you know what I mean, yeah. um, just get used to the crowd. So I did that for, for a couple years, and then I actually picked up the guitar when I was 12. Um, and started playing mainly when I was like 13. Um, and then I wrote my first song when I was 14 and did a lot of fairs and festivals. And I had my first band when I was, was 14. I opened up for an older band and that's kind of how all that happened. And yeah, I just played around Michigan and did a lot of fairs and festivals, opened up for National Acts. And uh, then I started writing more and ended up going back and forth to Nashville, doing a lot of uh, like writer showcases kind of thing. Uh, and then I ended up making the move um, when I was 20. 
So I understand you come from a pretty musical family. I do, yeah. My whole dad's side of the family uh, is all musically. Almost pretty much all of them at least play an instrument, and all of us sing, dance. So I did grow up. Uh, we would have, like, family reunions. So, and my uh, uncle, he's actually an Elvis tribute artist, my great uncle. Nice. Uh, so he uh, used to do karaoke. He has all that set up. So when I was little, we used to have family reunions. I'd go over there, and we all just sing and perform and dance and have a good time. And Yeah, so I, I grew up on my dad's side with a lot of um, music people. So, so that has always inspired me as well. So when you were 20, you took that pilgrimage to Nashville, which so, so many yeah. people do load up and uh, and go down there and uh, and try to make a go of it. What was that whole experience like uh, fr- from the beginning, and what has it taught you along the way? Yeah, um, so I moved there when I was 20, and um, well, well, which was nice because after I moved, I've already kind of you know been in the scene of Nashville just because I went back and forth for a couple years. So like. When I actually moved there, I was already associated with a lot of the writers' rounds and stuff. So that that helped me kind of get into the window of Nashville. Um, but I definitely, over the years of being there now, um, I've met a lot of writers and a lot of great musicians, just great people. Um, and I've learned a lot from just writing. Uh, I worked with uh, two. Well, when I first moved there, I worked with an independent label. Um, and that kind of got me, uh, with my first single, um, which is show you around. And so that kind of got me going in Nashville. And then I met this, uh, guy, Dan Mitchell. He helped me a lot with writing. So he helped me a lot how to like structure a song. Um, but overall, I just learned a lot about more writing, um, in Nashville and learning how kind of all of it works and with downtown and stuff. So, um, I've definitely learned a lot and I love living there. Uh, it's definitely, it always feels like a vacation every day. It's just a great place, and a lot of people are moving there, and uh, I, I really enjoy it, and I'm really glad that I moved there. So, What's been the toughest part of the experience for you? I try to not let it get to me, but I know a lot of people, uh, usually when they go to Nashville, there's so many people doing the exact same thing. Um, so sometimes it can get um, int- intimidating a little bit, um, but I always try to just make sure to focus on, you know, my music and who I am as an artist. But I could say that when I first moved down there, I did deal with that a little bit. Um, but I've also grown since I've been 20. So and grown within my music and my writing. So that obviously helps, too. Um, but I would say that was kind of tough just because I've never been in a city where everyone sings. Everyone's really good because every writer's around I've been to. There's so many great musicians. So. But I learned from it, so it's, it's all good. So what, what would you say has been the most rewarding part of being down there and being in that scene? Yeah, I actually, um, a year ago, I recorded three songs uh, with Ken Royster. Um, he does a lot of stuff, or he used to do a lot of stuff for Luke Combs. He actually produced one of his songs, um, Hurricane. And that whole experience, I went in there and I gave him my three songs that I wrote myself which was Give It a Shot and What's Right for You. And then I have a new single coming out here in the next month or so that I recorded with him as well. Um, we just did three songs, but um, I met all the musicians and the harmony. And it was just one of the best experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And Ken Reister, he's a producer, but he also is a vocal coach. So I was able to go in there and he would actually help me with vocals, plus produce and do all the music. So 
I was not just going in there and, you know, singing one line and be like, okay, that's, you know, that's good. Let's do the next song. Like, he actually went through, like, each line, like, you know, a few times. And he really just took pride in what, you know, what he loves to do is produce. And, and I'm just glad that I was able to get to him. And, yeah, that was one of my best experiences in Nashville since I've been there, for sure. So along the way, you've caught a lot of eyes. You've had the opportunity to open for everyone from the late Eddie Money to Bucky Covington and Daryl Worley to uh, more recently here, Jimmy Allen and Runaway June. What have those experiences been like for you? Awesome. I, uh, yeah, with Bucky Covington, um, he was a really great guy. He actually was on one of my songs um, when I moved down here. So that was really cool. I kind of got to work with him a little bit. Eddie Money was a lot of fun. Um, that was in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, I got to meet him. Uh, he was really good and really good for his age for performing. He did a really great job. Um, and then, yeah, I opened up for Jimmy Allen and Runaway June. Uh, I met both of them. They were really, really sweet. It was a, just a fun little bar. And, um, yeah, I just am very blessed and lucky to be able to open up for those people, especially like Eddie Money and Daryl Worley at a younger age. So, um, you know, I'm just very blessed that I was able to do those opportunities. When you get those opportunities, how, how much do you take the time to actually study what, what they're doing and, and take little pieces from that to, to incorporate into what you do? Yeah, oh, definitely. I, uh, especially with Bucky Covington, um, that was, he was really the main person that I really got to know um, throughout you know, my career in, in Nashville because after uh, I opened up for him, his producer at the time was his guitar player. So that's kind of how I made the move was because I was writing with his producer for a little bit. And uh, Bucky taught me a lot of about studio stuff um, with singing and everything, because studio singing and performing live is totally different. Mm -hmm. So I was able to learn a lot from him in that side. Um, and then, of course, with Eddie Money and Runaway June and Jimmy Allen, you know, they're up and coming. So I learned just how they were on stage and everything and with their fans and uh, meet and greets and everything. So I have learned a lot from each one of them in a different way. Well, before we go any further, let's hear the latest single from Kaylin. This one is called Give It a Shot. Kaylin, tell us a, a bit about the story behind this song. Yeah, so I uh, wrote it myself. Um, and it's basically just explaining, like, give it a shot with someone that you are liking and you kind of just go with the flow and you, you know, Go, go with this guy or with this girl and you just take it as it goes and just give it a shot. So it's kind of just living life with this person and um, try to have no worries and just try to make it happen no matter what. So that's kind of how I wrote it in that perspective. Well, here it is. This is Give It a Shot on Fast Line Fast Track.
song there and uh, one of the things that I'm curious about when I talk to any artists is uh, just who are the people who influence you yeah um, definitely I uh, when I moved to Tennessee when I was little when I was eight um, that was around the time when Carrie Underwood um, won American Idol so she has to be probably one of my most influences for sure with within music so when you step back and look at it uh, yeah. You know, you are quite a bit higher on the ladder than a lot of people who, who move to Nashville and try, try to make it. It sounds like you've taken a good path and really surrounded yourself with good people. What's on your musical bucket list? Currently right now, um, I'm really just looking to travel a lot more um, to different states and just get my name out there. And honestly, I just want to be able to travel and make music and perform because I feel like a lot of what I enjoy to do is performing, obviously. So um, I'm just, that's probably one of my main goals and bucket lists of this year or next year with this whole COVID thing. So so this has really <laughs> been, been a crazy time for so yeah. many artists. You, you haven't gotten a chance to get out and, and support the, the material that you put out there. How have you used this time? Yeah, um, I just been writing and spending, and other thing too is I was able to go home for a little bit. So I was able to spend time with my family um, in Michigan. So that has really helped, you know? Um, and, you know, obviously I had moments where I got a little discouraged because a lot of the shows I had a Nashville were canceled. Um, and just like everyone, I mean, I, I think every musician that lives there, you know, went through that discouragement of this whole pandemic. I mean, I think everyone kind of went through it, not just in music. So I really took the time to just, uh, write and sit back and be like, you know, maybe this is for a reason. Um, I was able to spend more time with my family, so and my friends, and um, so yeah. I mean, I think I think it was good in that way because I was able to just kind of sit back and just analyze everything and plan everything out for what's to come, and you know, we all have a plan for everything in our lives. So next, I want to share with our listeners your single "What's Right for You." You talked earlier about working with Ken Royster yeah. with Direct Image yep. Studios. He produced Luke Holmes's hit. Hurricane and uh, and so many others. Talk about this whole song. Uh, what what's right for you? What kind of place did that song come from? Yeah, I uh, when I first moved down, I was actually uh, I moved in with my significant other, um, and we were together for a while, but uh, it just didn't end up working out. And you know, I didn't have any family, obviously down in Tennessee much, like my parents or anything. So 
Um, I just went through a hard time with that whole thing. And uh, if you hear the song, you'll hear the lyrics. And it's basically just kind of what I went through during that time. But um, I wrote it and I actually started with the chorus of the song. Um, and it's basically just explaining, you know, at the end of the day, you want to do what's right for you. And it's probably one of my most proudest songs I have ever written so far, just because I, uh, I went through it, you know, and I, I, I had the courage to get out and move out and get out of that situation all by myself. Um, I just being 20, I think I was 22. So, um, and not having a family cause I'm very close with my family and my parents and everything. So just having the courage to be able to get out of a tough situation, a toxic situation. Um, I just was very proud of myself. And so that's why I wanted to release this song, um, to be my first single out for a while. Um, just because I feel like a lot of people can relate to it. And I feel like towards the end of the day, you have to do what's right for you. And that's what I did for myself. So um, I'm very proud of this song, and I really hope everyone enjoys it. Well, out of that also came a really powerful, uh, really great video as well. Yeah, yes, I actually shot that in Michigan. Um, and I kind of came up with up with it with myself. So, um, yeah, it ended up turning out good. So I'm, pr- I'm just proud of the whole entire process of the whole song, writing in it and recording it. Um, it was probably one of my best moments. We're going to go ahead and share that uh, video on our Facebook page when this goes live, so be on the lookout for that. But uh, right now, here is What's Right For You on Fast Line Fast Track. I was alone in that room I cried those tears and I felt the blues You had your ways of holding me down then I got back up And this is how I feel
great song there from Kaylin Pace. Uh, you, you work awful hard at your music, but uh, what, what do you like to do uh, when you put down the guitar and kind of walk away from music for a bit? Yeah, um, I actually I love working out. That's one of my one of my things to kind of get away. It's like another hobby for me. Um, and then hang out with friends, family, uh, and just relax. Um, but I do probably my other main hobby would probably be working out and trying to keep healthy and, and working. I'm a server at the Cheesecake Factory, so I do that besides music. Um, and yeah, that's what I do a lot of the time. What has this whole experience, this four years in Nashville and, and getting yeah. plugged into the scene, what, what has it taught you about yourself? So I, uh, when I went in the studio with Ken, I went uh, with those three songs, and those were the songs that I wrote myself. And um, I really learned that I could be at that level of recording and with my song material. Um, so I definitely learned throughout the years of being in Nashville and writing um, and also performing out. I had a, have had a lot of people come up to me and really encourage me and, you know, to say to keep going. So I've definitely learned you know, to be more confident, I guess, in, in my music and in my performance. And I just have grown, especially from that experience with What's Right For You. Uh, I think I've just grown as a person and grown as a woman. And with being in the industry as a woman, it's very difficult, um, especially nowadays with social media. And it's just more difficult for women. Um, so I've definitely learned to kind of stay in my lane, focus on what I'm doing, and just try to perform. I mean, I love performing and my stage presence. I love walking around and meeting new people everywhere I go. So, Well, I tell you what, if folks want to know more about your music, they want to download it, they want to follow along, uh, where can they go to check you out? <clears throat> yeah, um, I have a website. Uh, it's kaylinpace.com. Um, it's spelled K-A-Y-L-Y-N-P-A-C-E.com. Uh, I also have a Facebook page at Kaylin Pace Music. I post on all of that for my shows. Um, I have Instagram, um, which is Kaylin Pace Music, um, and Twitter, uh, and all that other stuff. And then for music, um, you can guys can download all my music on iTunes, Spotify, all the digital platforms. Um, all of it will be available there for sure. But yeah. And make sure you get on and follow her on those socials, especially on Facebook, where she does a lot of great uh, live acoustic performances on there just to, to yeah. throw some music out there, some some co covers and also uh, some great stuff that, that she's working on. And I always enjoy seeing those because you do a great job with them. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate you watching them all. So we're going to close out the show today with your first single, Show You Around. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so um, this was the first song I um, ever recorded in Nashville. Um, and it's basically where I come from, which is Michigan. Uh, and it's basically about my hometown and uh, growing up there with the lakes, boats, and beers. And, uh, yeah, it's basically a lot about my hometown in Michigan. And that sounds like the perfect recipe for summertime, lakes, boats, and beers. So <laughs> we're going to take out this one from Kaylin Pace. This is Show You Around on Fast Line Fast Track. We got the trucks, we got the deer, 
looking for some trouble A boy you can't find here We feel the forest, we make the Chevys We grow the corn that makes you escape Loving boy, if you ever want to get out of town I'll show you around, show you around, show you around Oh, oh Take a ride with me. We got the trucks, we got the deer, we got the lakes and boats and beer. So if you're looking for some trouble, a boy you can't find it here. We feel the forest, we make the Chevys, we grow the corn that. And that was Show You Around from Kaylin Pace, another great song. We hope you'll go check her out at kaylinpace.com. And Kaylin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Really glad we could do this. I'm bummed we couldn't do it in person because we usually try to uh, get these done at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop or Hank Snow's Rainbow Ranch, but uh, doggone COVID. I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll come back and join us uh, live in person uh, when we get a chance to do that kind of stuff again. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you having me on this. This is my first time, so I would love to be back, and especially in person. Well, like I tell everybody, once they're on here, you're part of the Fast Line Fast Track family, so you're welcome back anytime, and we hope you come back and showcase some of that new music with us. And again, we've been talking with Kaylin Pace. Again, if you want to follow Kaylin, you can check out her music at kaylinpace.com. That's K A Y L Y N. 
PACE.com. And if you're in the market for a new tractor, sprayer, or combine, or perhaps a hay rake or baler, now's the time to head on over to FastLine.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to the print catalog for your state or region. There's no need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to like FastLine Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show, including Kalen Pace. Be sure to come back next week to hear more from agriculture industry newsmakers, and we'll bring you the music of rising country star Ali Colleen. Until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com.